loved it. I send you a copy. Bam! Bitch went down. Okay, and welcome back to Horror Queers. We're doing the old horror movie. Gay horror movie? Not really in this case, but yeah, we're we're doing it, right? I'm Joe. And I'm Trace. <laughs> I try to shake it up every week just to, you know, give you a start. So I did tell someone that we were doing Oculus tonight, um, which, uh, by the way, we are covering Oculus on this episode. Uh, Mike Flanagan's Oculus. And uh, they were like, well, there's nothing queer or campy about that movie. And I was like, I know. Just wait and we'll tell you. We're going to get there. So we have a reason for covering this movie. But also it's our fucking podcast and we're going to do whatever the hell we want. And it's the fifth year anniversary of this film. Yeah, we've been covering a lot of anniversaries recently, but honestly, it kind of works out that they're all things that are relevant to us. So yeah, uh, I'll just kind of dive right in because uh, I have so many good things to say about this wonderful little movie. Um, so Oculus was released uh, in theaters on April 1st, sorry, <laughs> on April 11th, 2014, after premiering at TIFF in September 2013. Uh, released by Relativity Media, who has... Uh, if anyone is familiar with the saga of Mike Flanagan's Before I Wake, they are the studio that was having money problems and why that movie took like three years to get released. <laughs> Ooh, we're always slinging shit. Yes. Uh, but they're, they're, they got bought out, I think, and they're like functioning now. So good for them. Uh, yeah, uh, we got a budget of $5 million on this one. And I think this is one of the earlier Blumhouse produced movies. So, um, I mean, like what? It was filmed in 2012. I think Insidious was the first like big one in 2010. So it kind of tracks. Opening weekend rank. So <laughs> this movie opened up against, uh, Captain America, The Winter Soldier and Rio 2. So we didn't really have a chance at being number one, but it did open it up at number three with $12 million, which, you know, made double its money back opening weekend, which uh, is something we've seen from these Blumhouse movies, I think, as we've talked about them oh just a few times <laughs> just a couple uh it went on to gross 27.7 million domestically and 16.3 million internationally for a worldwide gross of 44 million dollars so almost nine times its budget which not bad oculus not bad it's probably why flanagan continues to get lots of work because he can make really good movies on the cheap well, and that'll be something we discussed, too, because um, I did watch the commentary today. All right. Listen to it. Watch it. I mean, you listen to the commentary as you watch the movie. Whatever. You watched it with your ears. Yes. And um, I won't go into too much detail because it's just mostly technical jargon. But he kind of explains his process and how he does things and how he can do things for cheap sometimes. And it's really kind of interesting. Um, if you all have never heard Mike Flanagan do an interview or do a commentary or anything, I highly recommend just looking for a video he cares about his craft he loves horror he loves his job and i think it translates very well into his movies you know whatever you think about oculus or everything else he's done spoiler alert this episode's gonna be a gush fest it is it is and i know that when we do movies like this that um because i know a lot of people that not a lot but a good chunk of people that don't connect with flanagan's material i know a lot of people they're like oh he does movies that are fine actually even um stacy ponder who um we i was gonna our... say you're subtweeting <laughs> stacy ponder right no 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 now, no, no, no. I, i'm not I, honestly I, it's not even her that's on my mind there's like a couple people on my facebook feed that um that i mean i actually <laughs> um i just unfriended someone for uh for making a post saying that mike flanagan is overrated and all of his movies are garbage and i legit unfriended that person <laughs> Trace will come for you, people. He will come for you. You know, I got actively upset, and I was a little drunk when it happened, but I don't regret <laughs> unfriending this person. <laughs> 
recurring theme on the podcast. Trace makes interesting decisions while intoxicated. Which is why I'm not drinking tonight. I'm only drinking coffee. So if I'm actually sounding a little speeded out right now, it's because I'm drinking coffee at 9 o'clock at night. Boo. Give the audience what they want. They want drunk Trace. They don't want high Trace. Y'all can uh, let me know. Let me know what you prefer. If you liked how I sounded in Ravenous and Stage Fright, then uh, then we'll go with that and I'll start drinking more on the podcast. If you didn't like those two episodes, then I'll stop drinking um, on the podcast. Not actually like stop drinking ever. <laughs> um, <laughs> anyway, so going into reception. So this is why I kind of want to jump to this movie's defense. So critic score is actually fairly high at 74%. And out of TIFF, like, this was getting rave reviews. It was insane. And this isn't Mike Flanagan's first film. It's his second feature. He did a, a one before this called Absentia, which isn't one of my favorites of his. Mm. My husband loves it. Like, I think he, whenever we do a movie night, he always wants to show Absentia. And I'm like, it's not really, like, a movie night type of movie, but... <laughs> That's not a crowd pleaser. <laughs> it's not, I mean, uh, yeah. And, well, neither is this one, though. This movie isn't a crowd pleaser. And I was actually struck on this... I don't know, probably my fifth viewing of Oculus on just how tragic the whole thing is. Anyway, so you got your audience score of 53%. So this movie was polarizing for audiences, and I really do want to go into why that might have been the case. And I'm also going on to that because the Metacritic score for critics was 61 out of 100, but the user score was 3.4 out of 10. Wow. So, yeah. So regular people did not like this. Yeah, but I really think it's the curse of the sad ending. Sad ending movies typically, like, don't do as well with audiences. See, poor prodigy. Oh, spoiler. So, yes, as I mentioned, directed by Mike Flanagan and written by Mike Flanagan and Jeff Howard. Now, they're a duo... Mike Flanagan, in case you didn't know, he's done such wonderful movies like Absentia, Hush, Before I Wake, Ouija 2, Gerald's Game, and the upcoming Doctor Sleep, and maybe this tiny show that y'all have heard on Netflix called The Haunting of Hill House. He directed all 10 episodes. Wait, do you call it Ouija or Ouija? Ouija. Like W-E-E-J-E-E. Okay. Wait, what do you say? I always thought it was Ouija. I don't know. My parents always said Ouija. Hmm. Okay. Regional dialect differences, perhaps. Yeah. I've seen. I don't know. Maybe it's Louisiana. I've seen both of those movies, and I can't. Well, I don't remember the first one at all. Like I, <laughs> well, I've heard everyone and their dog is like, "Do not see this movie. Repress this movie. Forget this movie." The thing with Ouija, the first one is it's it's not the dumpster fire it's made out to be. It's just so fucking forgettable. Like I mean, all I remember is that um fucking that dude from uh Stage Frights in it, and so is Olivia Cook. And that's about oh, that guy. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, whatever. Ouija 2, which is actually like Ouija 0 because it's a prequel, is super good. And I remember when I, I I'm going to toot my own horn here. I did meet Mike <laughs> Flanagan when he was premiering Hush at South by Southwest. And I got to interview him and Jason Blum. And they show, and this is um about six months before Ouija 2 came out. And they showed me a clip and I was like, oh, I, I felt bad because I was like, oh, Flanagan, like. You, what did you do to get stuck with the sequel to this terrible movie? And then, of course, lo and behold, <laughs> it turned out to be really good. So, yeah. But, yeah. So, him and Jeff Howard co-wrote this movie. And they actually have co-written a lot of Flanagan's films. They co-wrote Before I Wake. They co-wrote Ouija. They co-wrote Gerald's Game. Some Hill House episodes, as um, Jeff Howard wrote. And they also co-wrote the script together for the remake of I Know What You Did Last Summer, which has not been produced yet. No. And yet we're all waiting for it. I asked him about it. I mean, he says that's a question he gets asked about all the time, is what is happening with I Know What You Did Last Summer. And he just... Which means he's not allowed to answer. Well, he basically... 
again, this is back in 2015, 2016. He basically said, you know, we're done with it. Like, the script is done. We've turned it in. It's just waiting for a studio to make it. And he's like, I really like what we did with it. We did something very different. And after seeing what he did with Hill House and how he changed that story using elements of the of the original novel... I'm really intrigued to see what he did with it or what him and Jeff Howard did with it. But I'm kind of flabbergasted that there's a script by him in all the success that he's had in the last couple of years. There's a script by him sitting on somebody's desk going unproduced. Like that seems bonkers to me. I'm going to guess, and I could be totally wrong. After the lack of success for Scream 4, I I don't think studios want to make slashers right now. And I know we don't really get into the um, technical aspects of, like, you know, the crew very often. But I did just want to point out that Flanagan is a very loyal filmmaker. He tends to use the same people on every job. So, first of all, he edits all of his own movies. So, on any Mike Flanagan movie, you're going to see editor Mike Flanagan. And that is very evident in this movie, which, as you... I know we've talked about how I don't notice editing that much. But this movie, I noticed the editing just because of the seamless transitions between time periods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, com- the composers were the Newton Brothers, which they also did Hush, Before I Wake. I mean, uh, literally every movie we've been talking about, <laughs> the Newton Brothers did the score for all those movies. Cinematographer Mike Fimont, oh God, Fimagnari, uh, he did all of them as well. They're also do- He's also doing the upcoming Doctor Sleep and, you know, Mike Flanagan editing everything. So hmm. if people don't like Mike Flanagan's style, which I have heard people say, uh, it's Probably not going to change. But anyway, very recognizable style. A lot of long takes on Steadicam, um, especially in the mm-hmm. beginning of this movie. Uh, so yeah, recognizable style, you'll see it. Or if you've seen you know, episodes four and five, uh, or episode five and six of yes. um, Hill House. Hill. Yes. So very small cast here, but recognizable faces, especially now. Uh, maybe not as much in 2014. But uh, you got Karen Gillan, who at the time was most famous for Doctor Who, and now people might... (laughs) I've never seen Doctor Who. She's really good in it. I know her name is Amy Pond. That's all I know. And now, of course, people may know her as Nebula from Guardians of the Galaxy, or as Ruby Roundhouse from Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, which is really good. Mm -hmm. Lots of fun. Yes. And then, of course, Brenton Thwaites as Tim, her brother Tim. I... Just realized I really haven't seen him as in much, but he was in the Giver adaptation, and I did watch him in DC's Titans, where he plays Robin. Yeah, spoiler for me, he fucking sucks in everything I've ever seen him in. Oh, gauntlet thrown. He is the Britt Robertson of <gasps> male actors, in that he keeps getting chances to kickstart things, and then they just flop, because he's absolutely terrible. I don't know why I gasped like that, because honestly, I mean, I like Britt Robertson, but she kind of doesn't she sucks yeah she's not great (laughs) like everything that she's in you're just like uh you're garbage but she keeps getting chances it's like scott eastwood keeps getting chances and then this guy keeps getting chances well and i won't apologize for it i think thwaites is fine in this movie i just think because he has to play just mopey and sad the whole time yeah or confused or confused yeah and on that level i think he does fine but um karen gillen obviously has the meteor role of the Mm -hmm. two yeah um, then as their parents, you have uh, Roy Cochran as Alan, who was in Days and Confused, Empire Records, Scanner Darkly, and Argo. Um, only, well, I've seen two of those movies, but I don't remember him in any of them. Oh my god, I love him from Empire Records. I've never seen Empire Records. Oh god, I knew you were going to say that! <laughs> I, I haven't seen Argo or Empire Records. I, I don't, it's not, like, is Empire Records at all, like, uh, high fidelity? Like, I always get those two movies confused, but are they, like, the same thing? Like, it's, like, people in a record store? Yes, but a very different kind of tone. I would argue it's a seminal teen film text. It's really good. It's not, 
it's a good mix of comedy and pathos but like every person in that cast you will well all the girls in that cast you will recognize okay because <laughs> it's got Liv Tyler and Renee Zellweger and Robin Tunney and Robin Tunney is iconic she shaves her head in that movie and she's hilarious okay well I mean I I, I know Robin Tunney from um <laughs> you're gonna think I'm gonna say the craft but I'm gonna say no, vertical. because I know you too well it's vertical limit <laughs> the Chris right, O'Don- okay. the Chris O'Donnell mountain movie oh it's so good oh it's a great suspense film but not talking about it no <laughs> the mom Marie is played by Katie Zakoff, who apparently well, very well known for Battlestar Galactica, which I've never seen. It's the height of sci-fi opera. That is exactly what I've heard from everyone, and it's it's been on my list to watch forever. And I know it doesn't have that many episodes, so no, it's only five seasons. Maybe one day. Uh, she was also uh, famous, well, famously, kind of famously decapitated in Halloween Resurrection. Spoilers, and she was also in Riddick, uh, which is I I kind of enjoy. I like Riddick. Yeah, it's fun. And then just randomly, you know, you have young Kaylee played by Annalise Basso, who was also in Ouija Two. You, you know, Flanagan also likes to reuse the same cast members. She was also in last year's Slender Man, which I didn't see. Um, so oh. poor choice on her part. And the ghost in this movie, the main ghost, which I did not know until watching this movie, is played by Kate Siegel, a.k.a. Mike Flanagan's wife, a.k.a. Mm. Theo from Haunting of Hill House and the Death Meat Woman from Hush. I only knew it because I was looking up the cast call and I was like, oh, okay. But her character name is Marisol and I get a vaguely kind of Latina vibe from that. And I was like, is she? Is this just a weird thing? Is it me? Is it Maybelline? Maybe she's born with it. I don't know. I don't know. So, Joe, before we dive into the specifics of this movie, what is this about? All right. So for those of you who have not seen Oculus in a hot minute, here is your plot recap. After an opening scene in which two children try to escape a house at gunpoint, Tim, Brenton Thwaites, is discharged from a mental institution after serving 10 years. His doctor encourages him to connect with his sister Kaylee, Karen Gillan, but encourages him to put his own recovery first. Kaylee is at the auction house eyeing the sale of an old mirror, the Lasser Glass, before she meets Tim. Over lunch, she launches into a discussion about the mirror and her plan to kill it. Kaylee prompts Tim to meet her at their old family home that night. Scenes in the present day are intercut with the past, which document the decline of their family due to the mirror's subversion. Father Alan, Rory Cochran, and Mother Marie, Katie Sackoff, both eventually went crazy. Mary became convinced that Alan was having an affair with a woman named Marisol and had to be sequestered to the bedroom. Alan began spending all of his time in the study with the mirror, neglecting the children and his wife. It is eventually revealed that he chained Marie to the wall, and then on the night that opened the film, both mother and father attacked and nearly murdered the children. Alan ultimately killed Marie when she regained her senses, and Tim shot his father when he attempted to strangle Kaylee. That's the dad, not Tim, who Mm -hmm. was strangling Kaylee. (laughs) In the present day, Kaylee has devised a system to capture the mirror's impact in order to clear her brother's name. She has cameras recording the whole setup and multiple fail-safes in place to remind them to eat and drink, as well as timed phone calls from her fiancé, Michael Dumont, James Lafferty, who was not on the call sheet, but people might know from One Tree Hill. She also has battery-operated lights for when the power goes out. As the night progresses, the mirror's hallucinatory effects increase, and the past and present collide in increasingly frequent and alarming ways. Ultimately, Tim decides to activate the kill switch to shatter the mirror without realizing that he is actually, spoiler, 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 impaling his sister. The film ends as Tim is again taken into custody, this time for his sister's murder, as the dead family members watch from inside. (sighs) 
I just watched the movie twice. So I watched this last night and I was like, fuck, this is sad. And then I watched the commentary again. And like the commentaries with Flanagan and uh, producer Trevor Macy and Trevor Macy has also produced pretty much all of Flanagan's films starting with Oculus moving forward. Uh, he didn't do Absentia and they don't offer any solace on the ending. They don't offer why like they decided to end it on such a downer note. They just say, yep, that's it. <laughs> like Karen Gillan had to sit there under the uh, pen to that mirror for an hour while we like redid fake blood in her mouth and shot the shot her from a bunch of different angles. Well, I mean, the film really does lay out like it tips its hand from almost the very beginning. So there's a sense that they are probably doomed for failure. Like, it's strange. I've seen a bunch of reviews from regular people. I'm putting mm-hmm. those in air quotes. Yeah. Saying, uh, I don't know why they just didn't shatter the mirror right at the beginning before the mirror could really like begin working their magic. And I'm like, A, because of movies. Yeah. And B, because the whole point is that she's actually trying to capture its effect. But as soon as she starts going through the, you know, the 300 year history and how many people like we're talking more than 40 people have died by this thing. Right. Like their chances seem very slim that they are going to manage to pull this off. So you get the sense that they are either going to fail or that they're going to die trying. Well, and you've also got Chekhov's anchor, like from yes. the very beginning. Like, it's like, some, like, you know, that is happening. Um, mm-hmm. but, but I do think that I've seen that complaint before and also like, you know, why don't they just leave? Like, especially once they get out of the house, cause they do leave the house at one point, but yes, her, the motive for her trying to capture everything works for me. Mm-hmm. And like you said, if they did, if they didn't do that, it, there wouldn't be a fucking movie. But I also think that the movie does a very good job at making the audience believe as to like why they don't ever leave. And even when they do leave the house and they're drawn back in, because again, they see themselves inside standing next to the mirror under that anchor. And that scene is fantastic. It's so good. And I don't know if anything in this movie is like really scared me, but a lot of it creeped me out. Oh, actually, no, I'm sorry. Katie Sackhoff's face with her broken teeth really freaked me out. That that scared me. It's icky. One of the jump scares early on got me too. I will fully confess that. Which one? It's actually the really early one when uh, I think it's adult Kaylee is looking at the mirror and then she turns around and her dad's right there and he grabs her by the throat. Yes. So, okay. Tiny tidbit that I did learn is that uh, so there were a couple of scenes added to the movie after principal photography was done. So basically they finished filming the movie and I guess weeks or months later they learned that they had a couple extra days to go back and shoot scenes that they they didn't have time because this is a, this was a 24 day shoot and the script was anywhere from 110 to 115 pages long, which Ooh, is pretty long for a script. So that scene where she it's basically a nightmare sequence because she wakes mm-hmm. up immediately after that. That was added. And you can tell the scenes that are added because her hair is different. By the point by the time they had um, reshot these scenes. Karen Gillan had cut her bangs, and so they had to do different hair on her. So that's extra. The scene where the dad rips his fingernail off is extra. Oh, I like that one. Yes. That one it, makes me squirm. Uh, it makes Mike Flanagan squirm, too. He never intended to show the fingernail, but the producer, Trevor Macy, was all about the gore. As such was uh, the light bulb biting whenever he... Uh, that, that wasn't an extra scene. That was always included. But um, he wanted to just have the glass shatter and fall on the floor. But the producer stepped in and said, no, 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 no. We have to show this glass in her mouth. Yes. And honestly, I approve of that call. Because watching her dig that shard of glass out of her mouth is... Ah, it's perfection. I love it. Yes. And that brief shot of um the mom eating the plate that was added in uh, after the fact as well, because they wanted to give a reason as to why her teeth were all fucked up. Yeah, that's grody. So, yeah, I, where do you 
Where do you want to start? Hmm. Let me start with an interesting aside. Okay. So we've not done that many episodes of this, so people may or may not know this about me, but there's a couple of things that really bother me about film and TV. And this film actually has two of them, and it's still a four and a half out of five for me. Oh. So, yeah, which I think is a testament to how well the film is crafted and acted and edited and all these other things. But this film has two, I think, out of like three things that really fucking get my goat. The first one is when they tell you the ending at the start, and then they just kind of work towards it. Like, oh, yeah. More or less tell you how this film is going to end mm-hmm. repeatedly, especially the flashback stuff. They're like, yeah, you killed your dad because your dad shot your mom. Okay. And you're like, okay. And then we spend the entire rest of the movie working towards that. And then the other one is having a character in a horror film do nothing but question the validity or the reality of that. So the whole time where she's like, yeah, this mirror, like, killed you know everyone as well as our parents and he's like "Mm, there's no logical explanation i'm just gonna be a doubting thomas and typically that really really annoys me but in this film i felt like it worked because of the sibling tension and also because it allows you to get through that entire really heavy exposition dump of like here's the history of the entire mirror okay i'm gonna respond to that but what's before we i tackle that what is the third thing that bothers you that's not in this movie. Like, what is another thing that, like, really gets your goat in movies? I mean, admittedly, it's kind of a derivation of the the first one, but it's actually when you start at the end, and then oh. it's, like, 24 hours earlier. Yeah, no, I get that. TV shows do that a lot, and I hate that. Yeah, it, Alias used to do it all the time, and it's yes. insane. Actually, J.J. Abrams still does that all the time in his films. He does. Mission Impossible 3, Star Trek. Yeah. I'm like, hey, learn how to tell a story that doesn't tell me the fucking end in the opening <laughs> scene. And also get rid of those lens fucking flares. I d- <laughs> Well, Mike Flanagan doesn't use lens flares, so at least we have we don't have to criticize that today. I'm apparently the angry one on this podcast now. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I mean, again, you still gave this a four and a half. And th- this movie's a four and a half for me, too. I honestly had forgotten what I had given it. But then when I re-logged it in my letterbox t- uh, last night, I was like, oh, good. I gave this a four and a half. Like, I, w- I was right. So... With telling you the end of the story at the beginning, or at least at least the, the end of the past, the children's story. Yes, it, it works because it's early on when they have that di- the dinner scene when Kaylee first asks the dad, like, "Oh, who was that lady that was in your office?" I actually really liked this family, and even though you kind of, I was distracted from being constantly reminded of, "Oh, these parents are both going to be dead by the end of this story," because mm-hmm. I was interested in watching them exist. And that's something yeah. that I think Flanagan is really good at, is writing believable, likable characters, even though yeah. the dad is kind of like a douchebag for most of the movie. Yeah, I was actually, I I had foggy memories of this. I didn't see it when it came out in theaters. I saw it on video. And I couldn't remember how much of the parents we saw before they start to go crazy. And really, it's only a couple of scenes. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, I noticed that they're actually kind of already bickering, even in those early, like in that early dinner scene where Katie Sackhoff is kind of sort of joking with her husband, like, oh, what's going on? What's <laughs> happening? Like, like, who who was that woman in your office? <laughs> yeah, like there's there's some friction and some tension, which I think also helps to tell the arc of their story they're not this picture perfect ideal couple a la amityville horror 
where you know everything's perfect and then they move into this house and it destroys them like this i think has much more fully fleshed out realized characters than a lot of other haunted possession kind of films i mean just kind of like about the ending like because you know you were told the whole time oh like you know tim shot his dad but i like that they add in that bit where the dad's the one that pulls the trigger even though the son mm-hmm. is holding the gun so it's something that in lesser hands, I think, could make for a very boring film. Like, it, there are times where you, you could be watching the flashbacks and say, okay, like, I want to go back to older, older Kaylee and older Tim. I want to see what they're doing. But I also think it has to do with the way it's edited because the, apparently when they were drafting the script, they didn't always have older Kaylee and older Tim in the house. They were going to have them be like in the basement of the auction house doing their stuff and just cutting between scenes. Oh, somewhere like the original short. Yes. Oh, which I don't, I don't know if we mentioned this, but this is based on Mike Flanagan's, (laughs) sorry, this is based on Mike Flanagan's short film from 2005 called Oculus Chapter 3, The Man with the Plan. Uh, It's 30 minutes. Uh, It's available on YouTube, but it's also on the Blu-ray for Oculus. Basically, it's just a man in the room with this mirror and it kind of, it's kind of like the the exposition scene that Kaylee gives for like the first 15 minutes and then, you know, him going crazy for the last 15 minutes. Uh, Only really poorly acted. (laughs) yeah yeah probably so no offense to whoever that guy was but i was like you sir are no karen gillen well he so the scene when karen gillen gets the mirror and she's like hello you must be hungry blah blah blah. like there's the man down there like asking her what she wants to do with the mirror that's him Mm -hmm. oh really yes it's kind of fun but that scene was also added weeks after production ended so yeah that whole scene where like she she like confronts the mirror and like she sees like you know the 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 mannequins under the sheets behind her that's all like that wasn't in the original cut admittedly i can because this movie also gets a lot of flack for having kind of rote overly predictable kind of jump scares and i did feel that in that particular scene where she was basically i know what you did last summering those mannequins Mm mm-hmm and I was like, hmm, this is okay. But I did like the part where she goes in and she says, you know, how's that crack? I hope it still hurts. No, I, I yes. it's, it's a great character moment. And I know you mentioned this offline. You asked me, you couldn't tell if you liked Kaylee because it was Karen Gillan or because of the character. And that's not the first time I've heard someone say they didn't like that character. Yeah, no, I, I actually think there's a bunch of people who don't like her. But And I don't know why. I, I like her. Okay, so here we are. I think we're back actually into familiar territory for you because you like women characters who are not always nice. Like you you like a bitch, you like a strong woman, you like an assertive person. And Kaylee is all of those things. Like she's not afraid to be confrontational or direct or authoritative. And I think for some people, they watch that and they're like, she's just too much of a bitch. Hey, I don't think she is a bitch. I mean, I don't think so either clarifying <laughs> yeah so okay, okay. putting this into perspective you know you have tim who spent the past i think it's 12 years i think it's 12 years because it might the be 12 pa- sorry <laughs> no it's okay the past is 2002 and the movie came out in 2014 even though it was filmed in 2012 so it could be 10 could be 12 whatever oh sorry he was 10 when the events happened and it was 12 years ago okay got it so tim has spent the entire time in an institution kaylee spent the entire time by herself in the foster system mm-hmm. and i think that even though you don't get to see them live that out, minus the brief moments in the beginning with Tim, it makes sense as to why both of them would be the way they are. And so your issue with, like, A, Thwaites is acting, and him, you know, constantly questioning, constantly, like... Because, again, he's just spent 10 years being programmed to, like, basically change his memory and mm-hmm. change his entire thought process. It's the only way he got out. Yes. And it wasn't a fake-out. He really made himself believe those things. So that makes 
that whole thing with Tim and uh, questioning her. And also, he's the audience surrogate. Well, and the other difference is that in this film, when weird shit starts to happen, he stops asking those really stupid questions. It it more often applies, like my criticism more often applies to slasher films that are whodunits, where mm-hmm. people are just disappearing and, you know, maybe bodies are piling up and somebody's like, no, they probably just went to their aunt's house for the weekend. And you're just <laughs> like, Jesus Christ, get a fucking clue. Like, I get it. You don't know you're in a horror movie, but at the same time, stop yeah. acting like you're an idiot. Well, and the moment you're talking about, um, it's the moment when they're arguing and, you know, she almost gives in. And then she looks in the room and, you know, the cameras have moved positions. The plants are dead. And she gives this ha, like, yes. I won. And in the commentary, Flanagan and Macy refer to the film as, like, split into two halves. There's pre-ha and post-ha. And that's... <laughs> <laughs> apparently the ha was a big point of contention too because karen gillen came up to him and was like how am i supposed to say this and like people were questioning him like does she really have to say this <laughs> like ha he's like i don't know just say like you're, you're a kid who was proved right like ha <laughs> yeah because their relationship and to a certain extent their maturation has kind of stalled like she is still 12 he is still 10 yeah and they're trying to kill a mirror yes absolutely right and it's I can get why someone would be frustrated by them as characters because, yeah, they basically are children who are in their early 20s. But I just think that both the writing and those performances do such a good job of making you care about them that it doesn't matter. They're flawed characters, yes, but they're not like they're not bad characters. Yeah, as much as I don't like him, he's fine. I think that the film around him supports him to such a level that... At a certain point, his, dare I say it, lack of ability in acting <laughs> is superseded by Flanagan's technique for shrouding him in interesting visual techniques, in interesting events that are happening. And then you've always got Karen sort of somewhere nearby doing something interesting. Yeah. And I mean, again, you know, like I knew that she was Scottish. I did not know that he was Australian. So to also think that they're, these are both foreign actors doing American accents which not an excuse. If they were bad, it wouldn't be an excuse. You know, then that's the casting department's fault. They should have, they should have known better. But I still think it's impressive. I think another critique that people offer too is just the fact that I guess people find them to be stupid. But that exposition scene that you mentioned, which goes on for I want to say ten minutes, it is lengthy, but it's never less than compelling to me. Exactly, and the. I promise this is my last bit of commentary knowledge. No, I really didn't take that many notes in the commentary. And I know because you didn't watch it, you're like, I don't give a fuck. But (laughs) it's true. I'm just going to tune out. No, no, no. That is the one part of the script that studios had an issue with uh, because it was 15 pages of dialogue between Kaylee and Tim about just exposition. And they thought the audience was going to get bored. And I actually think it's one of the more captivating moments of the film. Oh, yeah. Like, particularly in the early part of the film. I read a couple of reviews that said that the film actually lags in terms of energy in the second half. But I think a lot of what gives it a boost early on is this particular scene. Because it is absolutely an exposition dump. But, I mean, I'm just going to gush all over Karen. No, she's she's great. gross. Um, (laughs) She's amazing, right? And this particular scene, she's got so much energy. She's so passionate. She's so driven by rage and vengeance to get back at this fucking mirror. 
And she's also like, what can I do to get my brother back on board? But yeah, like she's, I think it's a great showcase for her as an actress. But I think for the film, this is where it's getting you interested in this. Because otherwise, it's a movie about a fucking killer mirror. Right? That sounds stupid. That's, yes. Until you get to this where you're like... Let me give you the history, because this fucker has killed 45 people. Well, and also, the history is really interesting. Like, it's it's a yeah. it's a yeah. creepy story, and it's delivered with such, like, passion from Gillen. Like, I didn't want to look away. I was just like, oh my god, like, what else is happening? And Kaylee, you know, uses the camera to document everything. Apparently, when, when Flanagan did his short film... Studios that were... This is 2005, you know? Studios were bidding on it, or they wanted to buy it, but they all wanted... It to be a found footage film. Oh God! Right, right, and because it's this is like right before Paranormal Activity came out. So basically, mm. but Flanagan said, "No, I don't want to do that." He could have had this movie financed and backed in 2006, and he didn't get it done until 2012 because he held out on not doing found footage. It's kind of impressive. Like, good for him as an artist or an auteur, you might yeah. say. But now I'm kind of interested. What is, what would this movie look like as a fan footage film? Well, I'm guessing you couldn't, you wouldn't be able to do the alternate timelines. You would have to just do like, you know, well, again, yeah. the, I don't, because I don't know, I don't think he had a script, you know, for whatever the feature length was going to be. This is just <laughs> people saying, hey, I like this idea of your short film, like make it into a movie, but I want it to be found footage. So it would just be, if it's the same story, Kaylee and Tim just with her cameras, like it's just going to be those two cameras. Maybe. Mm, or they do up the entire house or something like that. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. The flashbacks would have to go unless they had like family videos that they had recovered from Betamax or something. Yeah, but it wouldn't work as obvious. I think one of the most impressive things about this film is how it weaves the narratives. And to lose that, it I can't imagine what this movie would even be like. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Anybody who watches a Mike Flanagan film, one of the things that they will notice about it is that he is obsessed with families. Yes. Like, he is all about the 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 dysfunctional families, the family dynamics, the relationships between parents and children. And husband and wife. And husband and wife. So, I think to reduce this down to just a sibling drama would end up losing a lot of the, the really interesting meat of the film. I actually, now, cause now that you say that too, I think the only film of his that doesn't deal explicitly with like relationships is Hush. And coincidentally, yeah. that's the only film that he co-wrote with his wife and not Jeff Howard. <laughs> so the relationship is <laughs> off the screen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got the impression that that was more about a showcase for her. Oh, absolutely. But it never, fe- well, I know we're not talking about Hush, but that movie never feels like it's like, this isn't a Rob Zombie, Sherry Moon Zombie type situation. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which also, can we never talk about them? <laughs> I really like Sherry Moon Zombie. Oh, that's right. I forgot. I do. Like I do like, I mean, I, I get the issues. And do I think she's the strongest actress? No. But I just really find something about Sherry Moon Zombie very captivating and magnetic where I just, 
I just like watching her kind of like go crazy. Well, I mean, obviously, you know, it's a woman saying fuck and piss and cunt a lot. So, of course, I like it. Mm-hmm. But obviously, Kate Siegel, much stronger actress than Sherry Moon Zombie. <laughs> just just a smidge. Um, but no, I to- to- totally on board with you. And that's why, like, when I see that people can't say they can't connect with his movies, I'm just very much like, what kind of a childhood did you have? Or what, what kind of a person are you where you can't watch e- even Flanagan's weakest film, which I would I would say is Before I Wake, is still a good movie, in my opinion. I know some people like it's like it's kind of like hit or miss for some people. But like to not be able to connect with these characters and to not sympathize or empathize or like want to see them, you know, make it through. What what kind of person? <laughs> oh, if you're one of those people listening, I'm really sorry. Or tweet us and let us know yeah what's the disconnect for you no please did you grow up in a foster family were you incarcerated in a mental institution for 10 years well and then 12 years. So, someone did give me an answer this morning on twitter um they said that they didn't like the way that his they don't like flanagan style the way he shoots things like without without really knowing the background of how films are made like they don't like his camera work they don't like his the, the aesthetic of his films which i kind of get but it, but it's hard to articulate, you know, why something like that doesn't work for you. It's just like, I, I can say, well, I like it, but I can't really tell you why I like it. Mm, I think you could, if pressed. I mean, I've definitely heard people say that his films aren't scary. And I think that has something to do with the way that they're shot. He, I don't think he's always great at delivering the scares. You know, we talked about the fact that there's quite a few jump scares in here but they always feel a little bit predictable Mm -hmm. and i kind of felt that way in a lot of hill house as well where it was kind of like when is the spooky ghost gonna show up but there is one great jump scare in hill house i think it's in episode eight and it's in a car and it i mean i was a little distracted watching it but then like i when that when this jump scare happened i (laughs) i lost it but i i agree with you but but then i would i would say this i think a lot of the scariest parts in Flanagan's films or his work in general comes not from the jump scares, but it comes from the fact that you mm-hmm. can, if you make this emotional attachment to these characters, and even even in um in Ouija, which this is the family of women, and it's uh, I I love that family in Ouija, but this the the scariness comes from fearing for them because you feel like you know these characters, so it's not necessarily a oh oh I jumped out of my seat I'm scared. It's more of like. Uh, this emotional connection that makes you scared for them i guess if that makes any sense it does yeah i to me what you're talking about is dread yes oh yeah there you go like i i find his films are infused with this sense that you not only know that something terrible is going to happen but it's going to happen to these people that you're falling in love with who seem very real very authentic and as we've seen with this movie and oh and spoiler alert ouija origin of evil um he's not afraid to kill people and kill people that you like. <laughs> Having just watched a future major motion picture that people will be talking about, uh, yeah, I I wish that people had bigger balls when it came to offing people that you like on the screen. Yeah, and I mean, granted, with Ouija, like because it's a prequel, and like you, if you've seen the first one, you know the story and you know how it ends. Which, oh, actually, because you you've seen Ouija: Origin of Evil, right? But you haven't seen... I have not. Oh, you haven't seen either one. My Flanagan oeuvre is actually under 50%. Wow. Ooh. Mm-hmm. Ooh. Well, spoiler alert. Homework. <laughs> spoiler alert. Origin of Evil does not have the happiest ending. Oh, I mean, yeah. Prequels, you're, <laughs> they're either going to go completely happy and it's like, oh, these events are only tangentially related. Here's a doll. Put it in your showcase. Or it's like 
bad shit happened, nobody got it. I would recommend, though, even though it sucks, watch the first Ouija just because of Lin Shay. God bless Lin Shay. It's a struggle, but she does have a connection to the prequel. So I would just say, like, watch it. Anyway, let's go into, I don't know how long we'll have on this discussion, but like, so the reason that, besides the anniversary, that I, I wanted to pick this movie, and maybe, I don't know if you have the similar thoughts. I... I find Kaylee and Tim's relationship so relatable because when I came out, uh, and I know I discussed this a little bit on the speed dating episode, my relationship with my parents was strained. It, I didn't like, I mean, obviously I was still there. They didn't kick me out. They didn't disown me or anything. Like it was, it was not the worst case scenario, but I definitely um, stopped wanting to connect with my parents. Um, and mm-hmm. this, I'm 16 years old. You know, it's the beginning of my junior year of high school. And my sister was going through some stuff, too. We ended up both being sent to therapy at the same time. And my sister and I never, like, super got along. Like, uh, And she's uh, almost two years younger than me. So I was 16. She was 14. And we bonded a lot after I came out and after she was going through her stuff. And to this day, I think because of us going through really hard times, being alienated from our parents at the same time, it really brought us closer together. And so... Watching this movie, I, I'm i thinking to myself, okay, if I have a killer mirror, I could see my sister and I having the same dynamic that Kaylee and Tim have in this movie. And I, ju- I just think that that's something that, and, you know, maybe your experience is different, but, like, when you're coming out, you know, you don't, if you don't have a lot of friends, if you if your parents don't accept you, it, but your sibling does, because siblings are different than friends. Like, you know, I had friends that were, you know, accepting of me, obviously, but... It's different when it's like... It's not quite the same. Well, yeah, because, I mean, it's, it's your family. I didn't tell any of my... I, my, my grandparents didn't know. My aunts and uncles, like, no external family knew. It was just my mom, my dad, and my sister. My mom and my dad weren't... Didn't handle it the best. And my sister did because she didn't care. And it was just such... It was so good to have that kind of an outlet. And I think that's probably why I connect with this movie so much, even though there aren't any queer elements, even though, you know, this isn't like someone coming out, like, Kaylee's not a lesbian, uh, Tim's not gay... It's just to see that connection of like, you know, no one else believes us. No one else understands us, but we understand each other and we believe each other. At least, you know, at post ha moment with Tim. Right. So. No, I totally yeah. get that. Yeah. I mean, I, I have an interesting relationship with my sister too. We, we've always been quite close. We've gone through a couple of different things. My grandfather's passing and we used to spend a lot of time with my grandmother. And then the summer after he passed, she was very, very different, and we went through some oddly traumatic stuff with her because she was grieving and she didn't quite know the way to process it, and she kind of took it out on us. Mm-hmm. But um, we've always been close. Like People have mistaken us for romantic partners because we have a kind of language that only we speak. Mm-hmm. My ex-boyfriend was incredibly threatened by my relationship to her because we would confide all kinds of things to each other. Um, What's your age difference? So, Sorry, she is three years older than okay. me. But we, she looks very young. So people frequently think that I'm the older one and she's younger. No, my, so my sister, you know, being two years younger, she was always taller than me because she hit puberty like at like age nine or 10, whereas I didn't hit puberty until I was like 14. <laughs> so people always thought mm-hmm. we were, well, first they thought they thought we were twins. Then they thought she was the older sister. So I would get the kids menu at restaurants and she would get the adult menu, but yeah so it that was fun it made me feel very great yeah so yeah continue (laughs) but i i get what you mean about that kind of sibling dynamic and 
I mean, one of the things that I always knew when I was working on coming out and I mean, I, I think I mentioned it on the speed dating. I had a relatively easy coming out. I was really fortunate in mm-hmm. that way, but at the time I didn't know whether or not it was going to be that easy. And I had kind of emergency backup in place. Like I had my friend waiting in the car in case I got kicked out, but I had kind of workshopped the whole process with my sister well, well in advance, like just sort of saying, what if this happens? What am I going to do? And that sort of thing. I mean, I think you and I also have the benefit of having a sibling who is close to us in age. So they're more attuned to the times and maybe the shifting political, social, cultural landscape. So that's also very helpful. But it's, I don't know, I'm interested to know if people who have greater age disparities with their siblings or sorry, disparity with their (laughs) siblings, or if they're just not as close. Because I know that there's tons of siblings who totally fucking hate each other, who don't get along. You know, they they try to go off on one another and make the other person's life hell. I've always felt so incredibly fortunate to have the sister that I do have. We're not quite as close as I would like anymore. And that's partially just because she's got kids. And Do you live in the same? Does she live in Toronto? No, she lives in Montreal. Gotcha. So it's not that far away. Like she used to live really close and we would still only see each other a couple times a year. But it's it's always really reassuring to know that if I need someone to tell me like shit straight to my face, like she will be frank with me. She will not sugarcoat it. And she was actually really helpful for that. When I came out, she would tell me things that my parents were saying because they would tell her instead of coming to talk to me and she would be like this is what they're dealing with this is how you can address it or this is like what you need to be aware of yeah i am um, my my sister my sister lives in houston so it's like a th- two and a half three hour drive from uh, austin but um i because i my relationship with my parents is good now um my sister still has a somewhat strained relationship with my mom um because they've just never particularly gotten along. And I actually do want to say, um, mm-hmm. to, let, let's people think that I'm throwing my parents under the bus. Um, I actually did kind of spring the gay thing on them. And the probably the worst moment I could have done it. Um, uh-huh. Because at the time, like the night that I did it, I remember doing this. Um, uh, we, we were all at, at the dinner table. I think it was before dinner. Maybe it was after dinner. I don't know. But they were confronting Haley about certain things that were going on in her life. And... <laughs> and you were like, by the, by way, the way, I'm gay. <laughs> well, past the Brussels. Sprites. I actually <laughs> made my sister. I was like, can Haley go upstairs to her room? I didn't want to tell them in front of her because I thought that she was. Gay. I don't even actually I didn't even know why I, I wanted that to happen. But I, was, I guess it was easier to have like one less person there to tell them. And so it was ironic that after I told my parents, which, of course, again, they've just been dealing with whatever my sister was going through. And then I dropped that bomb on them. <laughs> um, yeah. But it was ironic that after that, it switched, right? I was like, oh, like, I should have trusted my sister more and told her first, maybe by by herself, before I told my parents. I frequently think about how maybe our family would be different had maybe I told her in confidence and then told my parents later. But yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty. That's tough, too. I mean, sometimes that means that you're asking another person to can like to keep a secret. And that can be really tricky for them. So yeah, but then I, I mean, w- my, I told my sister because I was like, hey, by the way, I'm gonna torpedo Christmas. So be prepared. <laughs> I, I think my sister was very lonely at the time. So I just I always wonder like, you know, oh, I, I just always wonder if maybe like, you know, if I had 
been that confidant to her if maybe she would have felt less alone and maybe not gone through some of the stuff that she had gone through at the time. Yeah. But, I mean, you know, she's good now and we're good now and, like, it's fine. It was just, like, you know, thinking back to uh, 2006, 2005, one of those years, um, it's, like, dark days. Yeah. So, uh, listeners, this is kind of a long way to way of – I know this is a kind of a segue that that's off the movie, but – if you're listening to this and, you know, you have kind of a similar relationship or, or a very different relationship with your sibling or if, if it helps you relate to the Kaylee Tim relationship more or even less or whatever, let us know. Shoot us an email. Shoot us a tweet. I don't know. Join a community. But like, no, like talk. Like, like I don't know. <laughs> but And if you don't like this movie because you don't find it relatable, tell us why. I mean, like and this isn't to like throw you, to, um, to call you out. I'm just legitimately curious because um. I'm kind of at a point where I'm like, I don't understand how someone couldn't relate to this movie because, but obviously that's reductive because people have different experiences. So very true. So tell me, do you find that that point that I made earlier uh, that some people suggest the film legs as it heads into its second or sorry, the last act, I guess, does that apply to you or no? It doesn't. Honestly, I think the only part of the movie where I kind of rolled my eyes is whenever she accidentally kills her fiance. Mm. I don't need that. It's an odd piece. I don't need that scene. I think you could leave that out and just have the fiance just not be in the movie after the beginning of the movie and it'd be fine. Um, And it's a, it's not a long, I think it's like 140, it's an hour 45, I think uh, is what it is. Yeah, about that. And... It doesn't really lag for me, but it's mostly because you're watching two different movies. Maybe it's because I'm into the filmmaking process, but I just, I liked, I like seeing how it's done. So I, I was never bored, but, but the narrative never bored me either. I mean, were, were, did you find that it lagged? Um, I do feel like it has a slightly different energy in that second half. Like when they start to lose power, when the kind of past and present hallucinations start to merge together a little bit more i sometimes find that the present day stuff because they're off they're also often more separated because Mm -hmm. they're kind of reliving their own experiences and while that is interesting to watch like seeing them almost engage with their younger selves yeah there's that moment where he opens the door and like comes face to face with his younger self in, in his bedroom and even like the way that that is shot is interesting because for a minute you can I think you're meant to wonder whether or not the two of them are actually going to interact or is it just him remembering? Because part of this is that the the mirror's powers are a little bit malleable. So you know that it fucks with the way that people see things and then there's obviously the timing. But in this case, it seems like a huge component of the things that they're dealing with are actually their own memories as well as whatever shit the mirror is putting them through. Okay, so two things. Um, so one, I do find that the older... So much like how, you know, you, you know the ending of the younger story before, you know, at, at the beginning of the movie. So for me, the first half, I'm more invested in older Kaylee and Tim. But for the second half yeah. of the movie, I'm more invested in younger Kaylee and Tim, which, again, is a testament to this script and these performers, because you already know how these mm-hmm. kids are going to end up. But I was so much more involved in, you know, crazy chained up Katie Sackhoff choking the hell out of her daughter. Yes. It's so insane. And, but that's also because, yeah, like you, for the last half of the movie, Katie, Kay, older Kaylee and Tim were just kind of watching things play out until Kaylee gets killed by the anchor. And the other thing I wanted to bring up, which is a little bit different, is the powers of the mirror. 
I do mm-hmm. I do think I've seen people complain about how it's they're ill-defined or it just means that everything you see could be fake. And I'm like, well, yeah, like that's that's the point. It's kind of the point. <laughs> <laughs> like ba- basically from the moment that um, I mean, some, something happens kind of early on and you're like, oh, like literally anything, like, any, everything, the whole movie. It's not even like unreliable narrator. The movie itself is unreliable. And that but and yeah. that's kind of why the movie's never boring to me. Because you're always trying to figure out, even though you never will. I mean, like honestly, you can't fully know. I mean, you. I have a pretty good idea that every almost everything in this movie doesn't happen, except for her killing the boyfriend. Which is arguably one of the reasons why that scene both does and doesn't work. Because it could just as easily be a hallucination. Like, they could have ended that with, like, the boyfriend being outside the house. And you would have been like, oh, yeah, okay. So she didn't actually mm-hmm. kill him. Like... Because her realization occurs when she holds up the phone and she sees him. But you've also seen that that phone is unreliable. Like, I mean, it's one of the things, like, she's got a huge amount of hubris, which is kind of the reason why it gets her into trouble and she ends up dead. Because she assumes that she can outsmart the mirror. And the mirror proves to me in that particular scene that she's fucked. Like, her reliance on cell phones and phone calls and that kind of stuff you're like no you haven't thought this through this mirror will get you one thing that i did find genuinely creepy and i would even say scary um so in, when they're kids you know they keep trying to call the um the doctor and it, you know the doctor keeps and they call different doctors but it's always the same one that answers and he says oh like have your father call right and it happens after she kills the fiance and they walk outside and they call the cops and they see themselves yeah. inside but then the same voice goes have your, but it's like a creepy kind of distorted voice, and it's like have your father. So call. monotone too. It's creepy. I, I literally just got chills like thinking about it. You did, yeah. You gave it to me long distance. <laughs> <laughs> this is like some unfriended shit. Oh man. Um, but okay, but I just want to recap though. I think she has a a fair reason to have hubris because this is the rundown of what she does to have precautions. She has three cameras, mm-hmm. each on independent uh, power circuits, you know, videotaping the room in the mirror. She has private landlines, uh, and Kaylee controls all electronic devices. An alarm goes off every 45 minutes to remind her to change the tapes in the camera. An alarm goes off every hour to remind them to eat. They're fully stocked on water to prevent dehydration. Each room is filled with its own thermostat, from which data will record fluctuations in temperatures. Anything greater than 5 degrees will set off an alarm. Her fiancé calls her every hour, Plants are laid out to see when they die and test the radius of influence, quote unquote, of the mirror. And she has that fucking anchor tied to a timer every 30 minutes. If she doesn't reset the timer, it will fall and crush the mirror. That's a lot of precautions. And, mm-hmm. but you're right. But I don't, she did underestimate the mirror. She didn't understand the full capability of its power. To me, there's one piece where I'm, it, it's, a little bit frustrating to me. I don't know if it's a mistake on behalf of the screenplay or if it's meant to be an example of her misunderstanding it. But mm-hmm. at one point he goes to make a call and she's like, you can't take calls in here because you can't trust anything that happens. Yeah. And then that's when the fiance calls and she takes the call and she's like, you need to like call me on time. And I'm like, bitch, you just said you can't take a call in here. Yeah, that's... That might be a script laziness issue. Not laziness, but yeah, I that's think, probably a script issue. <laughs> yeah. It, it's a minor point, but part of me, knowing what happens, having watched this a couple of times, I was like, girl, like, you need to keep better track of this because as soon as they both start to go down the rabbit hole, you're like, Ugh. like, well, there were signs you needed to take further precautions. <laughs> okay, so then, 
I'm going to ask this. Let's say the roles were reversed and we um, we had someone that wasn't Brenton Thwaites. It was an actor that you liked. Um, mm-hmm. In the Kaylee role of being kind of the cocky, like, I've got this mirror. It's it's mine. Uh, do you think audiences would be as hard on this man character being hubris and cocky, uh, having hubris and, you know, being cocky as opposed to a woman? Mm-hmm. That's a really interesting question because I think the film benefits from having a stronger, more interesting female, not just because it's a, it's a horror kind of, I was about to say cliche. And then I was like, no, it's like, it's a horror asset to have a, a strong female protagonist. But see though, these people that complained about not liking Kaylee and like thinking she's annoying or thinking she's like not relatable. That's not really, I don't think they view her as a strong female character. They view her as cocky and stupid, <laughs> but would, would they feel the same way if it was a man instead? Uh, or, uh, I don't know. Maybe... Men men tend to get defined as jerks, mm-hmm. whereas women tend to be defined as bitches yeah. or like harpies or shrill or so. I mean, hi, we still live in a patriarchal society. Yeah. Although I imagine a lot of people who don't like her, if they're listening to this, they would they would resent that comment. They would be like, "No, it has nothing to do with that. I just I don't like this character." Um, to which I would say challenge yourself think about why that is is it because you don't like those kinds of women and if that's you please like tell like i want to know I, I and but just saying oh i don't like her that's not an answer you, like think about why and try to articulate it and then maybe you'll see you'll come to a conclusion about your own kind of thoughts <laughs> and you'll decide if that's worth tweeting out into the world <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean, I think there's always interesting things to be made of why characters are a certain sex or gender, why they are a certain age. You know, we've talked about how these are early 20-somethings, but acting slightly younger because they have that stunted growth. I do think it's interesting that it's an older sister, younger brother dynamic, and she is more forceful. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the foster care, and also the fact that he's probably been doped up and therapied out the wazoo and that kind of stuff but like this film would be very different with two girls or two boys yeah and i think that's that's always a really interesting thing i don't have anything further to say no i mean like (laughs) i i i can't comment on it because i mean well i mean i guess like because i i I don't have a brother and like i i'm not a girl so like i don't i didn't grow up in a family with two sisters you know i i don't know what that would look like uh i I would argue that it's probably in this movie a brother-sister thing so that both sides of the audience have someone that they could, they could potentially relate to. Well, and it also kind of mirrors like their their junior versions of their parents. Yes, and I didn't mean to say that. Oh, only boys can relate to boys, and only girls can relate to girls. But I just <laughs> I just mean that it kind of covers both sides of the spectrum. You know, it's like so that the boys who the boys who could relate to a girl or could relate to a boy, like they, they everyone has their own kind of person. Um, yes. although as we've discussed the bases are covered yeah exactly but it's funny that you say it mirrors them because <laughs> even though it's <laughs> even though it's on the nose well no because even the ending of the movie because the movie ends with both timelines merging I mean, not merging but like basically like both Tims are being taken away in a cop car so yeah but they, they both timelines mirror each other figuratively and literally with a literal lesser glass mirror lots of fun stuff with mirrors and reflections and doppelgangers and that kind of stuff in here as well do you like the ghost stuff in the movie like do you like like uh, the kate siegel marisol and do you like like the all the ghosts coming out at the very end to like surround the kids i admittedly don't love the special effects but i don't know whether or not to say that that's part of that five million dollar budget 100 oh, it's not going to get you a huge amount but um but 
I I really like when the mom, like when Katie Sackhoff's arms are actually out of the mirror at the oh, end. Oh yeah, I thought that that was actually pretty visually interesting, but also it it's a good way to be like, hey, just come a little bit closer. And you know, of course, you're like, no, stay away from the fucking mirror. I know. <laughs> oh, okay, wait, wait. Um, first, the, when the cops, like, watch on the phone the video of her getting the anchor, and, like, you just see her arms drop. Oh, it's yeah. creepy as fuck. That's a good one. That's a good yeah. effect. That's, like, some, I, I want to say dummy work, because I have to assume that's what it was. Yeah, but, but regarding the ghost, I, I actually just realized this, because, again, this is 2014. It's Blumhouse, and... Look at Insidious, the ghost in that movie, none of which, to my knowledge, at least in the first one, had any kind of mm-hmm. enhanced CGI effects. It, it, it looks like stage actors. And that yeah, that doesn't be. it doesn't work for some people. It really I actually really like that movie. And I like that technique because even though it does look less ethereal, it's really creepy for me. But that movie has like smoke and it's got you know kind of like wavy dream logic like it's a very different visual dynamic right this feels very realistic with then somebody with some bright shining eyes yeah well because because their eyes like are mirrors but then like i feel like like because you know their face is kind of blue they kind of have like the black cracks going down their face um there was a particular moment with the marisol ghost where um I want to say they, they they oh they open the door and like I think young Kaylee opens the door and she's like right there just staring at her. Yeah, that one's pretty good. Yeah, and not really a jump scare because I don't think the music really cues you to make it a jump scare. But I like that. But yeah, I mean like with all the ghosts holding around them, which is a takeaway from the short film because that's what happens in the end of the yeah. short film. So I can only imagine that's the. I would assume it's the only reason they did that. Well, I kind of also like this idea that the mirror is. <laughs> collecting people like it's it's almost like a treasure a treasure chest well of uh souls where like if you die you essentially end up getting sucked into this mirror and it can reuse you later on whenever it needs someone to scare because if you pay attention during the rundown of all the people who died marisol is one of those people she's the last owner yeah yeah uh well and it's interesting because that's basically what hill house is very true because um which again he does a lot of the same things, like a lot of the same themes, a lot of the same concepts. Doesn't bother me. I guess I can maybe see how people are like, okay, dude, like, give us something else. Yeah. yeah. But for me, it's like, I don't want this man to leave the horror genre because I like what he's doing for the genre. Yeah. I mean, it's a genre that doesn't, it doesn't have a ton of filmmakers who are really invested in heart and family dynamics and even to a certain extent, a little bit of melodrama. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a good thing. Well, it's a good thing that he's here to offer that. Not that it's not a good thing. Have you read Doctor Sleep? I've not. Okay, so not a huge King fan. Whoa. <laughs> I might have to edit that out. Um, <laughs> um, so I don't think Doctor Sleep, Doctor Sleep, got very good reviews, but I really enjoyed it because well, my edit out moment. Uh, I'm not the biggest fan of The Shining, uh, the book, and you've already said that before. Oh, okay, well then, never mind. I'll keep it in. <laughs> but I really like Doctor Sleep, and it's not. I don't even know if I. Qu- call it a horror novel it's more kind of like a road trip adventure thriller kind of movie um oh god there i am doing the whole thriller horror debate um (laughs) but i'm really excited to see what he does with it because i think it's a book that is not perfect but all the themes that you like that you would expect from like flanagan film are in that book and i'm excited to see how he expands upon them and like makes them his own i feel like gerald's game gave us a 
a bit of a solid taster into what he's capable of. But the thing with Gerald's game is he read that book. He's like, I think he's the same story in all of his interviews, but he, he read that book when he was like 19 and he, that was his one, like that was his Moby Dick. That was his whatever on a pedestal. Like he always wanted to make that movie. So that's, you know, years, decades of thinking about this movie. Dr. Sleep came out in 2013. So, I'm interested. Yeah. It's not something, it's probably a passion project, but it's not on the same level as he had for Gerald's game. And Gerald's game is a near perfect film for me. So I, this is going to be a little bit different, I think, but hopefully just, just as good. Right. Yeah. No, it'll be interesting. I mean, he's keeping in the Stephen King canon. He's keeping in the Hill House canon. We'll see. I, I feel like he's not venturing into projects that are going to convince people who don't like him to check him out or give him another try. Yeah. But I think there's enough people who really respect the kinds of things that he's doing and who like his work that he's going to continue to find a good amount of success. Yeah, which, great. Keep giving him money and the people that don't like him can go watch other things. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there's plenty of films that come out every year. Like, <laughs> if you don't like a Flanagan film, you don't have to check it out. Nobody's putting a gun What are you about? There's only Mike Flanagan films coming out this year. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> <sighs> uh, wait is flanagan an anagram for netflix no. oh my god well I mean, the last two things he's done have been on netflix and i'm so bummed we'll never get a blu-ray of hush or gerald's game but i digress Ugh. right okay so i have a question and Ooh. then a game okay so my question is have you seen aja's mirrors and if so how does this compare <laughs> i don't know what that is alexander aja oh <laughs> No, I ha I saw that in theaters. No, I, I thought like the you really should have said Alexander because you just said Aja's mirrors, and I was like Aja like the drag queen. Oh, that that's Raja. <laughs> Shit. Ugh. Never mind. Um, but yes, I, I yeah, have seen that movie. Who's the idiot now? <laughs> um, I confess that um I saw Mir mirrors. I think was my freshman year of college, maybe the summer after my freshman year of college, and I um I really enjoyed it. It's not good. It's not a good movie, but it's stupid fun it's a movie whose rules are very ill-defined and it keeps breaking them okay and but there are some there's one spoiled in the trailer gore effect um with amy smart in the bathtub but these are both very different movies because like in that movie it's okay, if you look in a mirror your reflection can do something and it kills you so you look in your mirror and your reflection will all of a sudden like pick up a shard of glass and slit its throat which then your throat will be slit oh i see okay so they're not doing it to you it's if your reflection does it then yes it will do it to you but the thing that that movie does that is stupid is that like uh, Paula Patton, who's the mom, walks into a room that's flooded with water, and her reflection in the water starts doing stuff. So then it's like, okay, well, it's not mirrors, it's reflection. Yeah, any reflective surface and your toes. Yes. And, I mean, not the biggest problem, because there's like an evil nun in the movie, too, um, which, ooh, you know what, though? Better movie than The Nun. I'll just say that right now. <laughs> <laughs> or at least more entertaining than The Nun. Not a good movie, uh, but it's fun. But this is this Oculus is way better, and it's a more interest. I mean, again, like the fucking ten minute backstory of this mirror is more interesting than the entirety of mirrors. All right then. So that's my. <laughs> I'd like Alexander Aja, but you know, that's not his best work. I mean, his best work, I would I would say, is Piranha. High tension. No, it's yeah. Piranha. <laughs> Piranha is like peak Aja for me. Ah, uh, fair enough. I like horns. Though. I mean, we're all we're all still waiting for that weird hurricane alligator movie. Right? So. <gasps> oh yeah. Ooh, ooh. I'm, I am on. I'm. I, I don't even remember what it's called. I think it's called like Creeps. Creeped. 
Yeah, it's got a terrible name. Yeah. It's, Every time I read about it, I'm like, why is it called this? But it's such it's ah. yeah, people trapped in a house during a hurricane with an alligator or a crocodile, like right up my alley. So maybe a Patreon episode if it goes to theaters. Who knows? Yeah, that's a big if. Big if. Uh followed by forty seven meters down, uncaged, or whatever it's called. Okay. Game. Game, game, game. Your game. This could be a potentially tough one. If you did the sequel, how would you make it different? God, the mirror is still out there. Presumably, it's still killing people. I'm frankly surprised that there isn't a direct-to-video sequel of this film. I am too, but Blum, Jason Blum went on a tear recently with answering people's questions about sequels. And when uh, someone asked about Oculus, and he was like, no. <laughs> like, there's not going to be a sequel to that movie. He was very abrupt in that interview. It was like, is this? No. Mm-hmm. Is, no. Just stop asking. Yeah. No. I mean, I'm sure it's because he gets like, tweeted okay, all the time. <laughs> these, but... movies co- these movies cost him like four to five million dollars. Yeah. Like, he's got that money under his couch. I know. Like, You know, and I'm never anti-sequel because, you know, a lot of times people are like, well, the first one was so perfect. You just can't make it better. And I'm never really of that mentality. But I literally don't know what, without going in, I mean, like... Without doing Happy Death Day to you type stuff and making it like a totally different movie, I don't really know how you can do this again and make it either just as good or even better. I would Hellraiser for this shit. I would do the origin story. I would say like, yes, yeah. with like a new story. No, you go the Ouija and the Annabelle route and you do a prequel and you do, yeah, like how it started. I get that. I get that. Um, but, but see though, like Hellraiser 4. It would still be kind of boring, but. Do you think. Because I think part of the reason this movie works and is as effective as it is is because you don't know the truth. Like, they never tell you about this mirror, like, what it is, like, how it came to be. Do do you think that would kind of hurt, A, retroactively hurt the first one and make the second one less interesting to, like, know the origins of this mirror? I think it would depend on how creative the screenwriter gets. You know, if it's something like Hellraiser where it's... Oh, I called a demon and we had a bunch of sex and our blood dripped on this dumb box. You're like, "Eh, I mean, maybe not. Yeah. Sidebar, I actually love that movie. So bloodline come at me for yeah. (sighs) I think that movie is cuckoo bananas stupid, but I kinda love it. I mean it's I'm probably gonna make us do it one day. It's the it's the fourth best Hellraiser movie, so (laughs) there you go. Um Uh, I actually prefer it to three. Oh, I think three is better. But dumb. Like three is such dumb fun. But like it's I think it's more fun. I I don't mind Bloodline. I I think it's like again, on Hellraiser terms, Bloodline's totally fine, but whatever. Yeah. I mean this is this is a steep incline that we're talking about. (laughs) Uh I do think with Oculus, yeah, there's a definite danger. I mean Let's face it, they're never going to make a sequel no, to this no, no, no. or a prequel. But I think if you went a traditional route and said something like, yeah, you know, it it's a possessed or a charmed or like I disfigured a witch and she cast a spell on my house where I made this mirror, like it could get really bad. But I think if you could find a way to make it interesting, I don't know, like maybe somebody died and their spirit ended up in the mirror and as a result the mirror is now evil yeah i don't know yeah i mean i I know (laughs) honestly well here uh, listeners send us your sequel ideas for oculus because honestly like i'm i'm on that level where i'm like i don't know what you can do like i don't know what you can do for this movie to make a sequel yeah would would it be tim gets out 10 years later again and he has to track down the new mirror or the the mirror's new owner or something like that or would you blank slate it would you 
catapulted into the future, go into the past, what would you do? Yeah, let us know. So, uh, yeah, give us your sibling stories. Give us uh, your thoughts on this movie, why you like it or why you don't connect with it. And uh, give us your sequel ideas. Ooh, we've, we've given a lot of homework in this episode. <laughs> we want all of your intellectual property as well as all your backstories. <laughs> While you're at it, send us your social security numbers and your middle name. Yes. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, well... Are we ready to housekeep? Yeah, wrap it up. So yeah, if you want to reach us on Twitter, you can reach me at Traced Thurman. And I am at Beast on my remote. That's the letter B. And if you're tweeting about the podcast, please be sure to use the hashtag HorrorQueers in your tweet so we can find you. Or uh, if you want to do something private, not public, you can email us at HorrorQueers at gmail.com. And if you do like us and you want more exclu- uh, you want more of us, uh, then you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com backslash horrorqueers, where you can listen to episodes on us and uh, Happy Death Day to You. And when this episode drops, I, I don't know what we're going to have, but we'll have two episodes in April. And you'll get lots of exclusive <laughs> content. And uh, yeah, and also on that note, uh, if you're already paying for us, thank you. We love that you think we're worth paying for. So, Joe... What are we covering next week? Well, it's ironic that we should be talking about sequels because we are headed into sequel territory as well as the past. So we are going to be checking out Psycho 2 from 1983. Well, I'm really excited for that because, uh, in, listeners, in case you haven't seen it, Psycho 2 is great. And I think it's kind of having a reappraisal of the, over the past couple years. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Psycho 2 is awesome. Uh, and if you haven't seen it, please watch it before next week's episode because it'll be a doozy. Yeah, it's really good. I'm excited to revisit it. I hope it holds up. Yeah, <laughs> me too. But yeah, so uh, that uh, I think on that note, we can cross that Oculus. Yeah, and cross out horror queers. This episode was brought to you by the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network, delivering your weekly horror podcast fix. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit bloodydisgusting.com backslash podcast network.